on a continual basis, you know that what we're trying to do is look at the commands of the Lord that are found in the Gospels. Some of the very last words of Jesus is found in the Great Commission told his disciples to go around all the world and preach the gospel, teach all nations, and baptizing them. And then he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. There's many, many, many commands within the Bible, but we're just looking at the ones that Jesus gave to his disciples in that three and a half years of his ministry before going to the cross and ascending into heaven. I've encouraged you from the very beginning to settle it in your heart that these commands that he gives us are going to be an impossibility without the Spirit of God enabling us. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so these commands are not really spoken so much to our minds and our bodies, uh, but they're given to our hearts. They're commands that appeal to the heart. And that's why some of them have been, at least for me, very uh, convicting. And uh, we realize that these commands are given by the king. And not just the king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He didn't give them to us to, to consider, to ask us ourselves, do we really want to do this or not? Should I do it? Do I feel like it? But the king's commands are to be obeyed. And we begin uh, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 32. And we're coming to a real transition point in the ministry of the Lord. As Pastor already stated, you know, every year at the beginning of the year, we uh, kind of have a transition time and want to do more or, or change things. And the disciples have been with the Lord for a number of months. And now he's getting ready to send them forth. He's taught them a lot of things, let them see a lot of things. He's been doing all the teaching and the healing. And, and now he's going to send them out on their own uh, to evangelize and to come back and report to him. But before that happened, in verse 32, it says he's, a, he's preaching, and, the, and it says in verse 32, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, 
but the laborers are few. And then here we have the imperative. Here we have the command of this section. He commands them, Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. That word command, or I mean that word pray ye, it carries with it an understanding of pleading, of beseeching. It has the idea of begging with a sense of urgency, a need that needs to be met, and there's heart put into the prayer. It corresponds to our English word to beg. And so he's asking us to beg God that he would send laborers into the harvest field. And so, as I said, we're kind of at a transition point here, and let's just kind of uh, point this out. In chapter 10 and verse 1, and when he called to him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the name of the 12 apostles are these. And so you see the terminology disciples, and then you see the terminology apostles. They're going to go from disciples, which are primarily learners. They, up to this time, the Lord had been doing the teaching and the preaching and the healing. And so here, the pupils are going to be designated as apostles. And we, and we know that there was a specific 12 that were identified as the apostles, but the word apostle means one sent forth with orders. And though that office of the apostle is no longer legitimate today, it, it went off the scene it, it, uh, after Christ and after the disciples died out. Nevertheless, we are still sent forth with orders underneath the New Testament church. And it's still our obligation and our responsibility to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize those that are saved and then teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so that's what is going to happen you go after, after, if you read on down through chapter uh, 10, uh, down to verse 5, you're going to see that he commissions them to go into all, uh, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and uh, sends them forth, and we'll cover that more next week. But uh, if you have a red letter Bible, you'll notice that almost all of chapter 10 is instructions from the Lord, and and uh, and I guess for sake of time, I'll just leave that till next week. But it's uh, there are some principles here that go from I'm not going to leave it till next week, am I? Uh, <laughs> it goes from when he sends them out all the way through the tribulation time in this passage. And it kind of just keeps telescoping out and telescoping out. And there's going to be some things just that apply specifically to when he sent out the, them to the sheep of Israel, lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's going to be some things applied to, to the tribulation time. But there's principles throughout it all that apply to evangelism, that apply to evangelism over all time periods. And we're going to try to look at those. But I want to show you uh, some things about, about this that we can learn. First of all, we need to stay focused on the business at hand. And you see that in verses 32 and uh, thir through 34, 
they, Jesus had healed this man that was possessed with the devil, uh, demons, and they turn around and say that Jesus is, he's the prince of the demons. And, and, and I think that it'd be the tendency for you and I, if we had been doing wonderful things and benefiting people and helping people, and then people come along and they say, oh, he's just the devil, and, and all this big uh, propaganda begins to come out of the Pharisees about how bad of a person we are and how we're just doing this for ourselves, there'd be the tendency to just, okay, forget you guys. But you see <laughs> that in between verse 34 and 35, there's no comment the Lord makes about what they're saying about him. What we find here, and Jesus went about the cities and villages teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel. He stayed on point. That we just need to keep doing our job. Because, because um, preaching of the gospel stirs up people. They're not in love with Jesus Christ when they're in a lost state. I wasn't. When I was drugged to church by my parents and heard the preaching and, and it got underneath my skin, man, I got out the door as fast as the last song was sung. I didn't want to be around that. And, and here we find that Jesus it would just give us an example. You just need to keep doing what you're supposed to be doing because, because people are going to misrepresent you. People are going to tell lies about you. And if we were not careful, we can spend all our time trying to, trying to defend ourselves. Of course, if we've done wrong, we need to admit wrong, and we need to, to deal with that. But that wasn't the case here. He, uh, he kept on point. And then note there, verse 35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogue and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among them. That uh, he focuses upon the all, every one of them, not only the big cities, but the villages. Mark says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke says, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. John, 1 John says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so what does he preach? Well, he preaches the gospel. It's called the gospel of God. Gospel means good news. It's called the gospel of the kingdom. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul calls it the gospel of grace. And, of course, it's just the good news that Christ died for our sins, defined in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scripture, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what it did, what it obtained for us, what opportunity it gave for us, to put our faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that paid for our sins. That's the good news. And then he said he preached the gospel of the kingdom. And sometimes this, uh, you know, well, what's the kingdom? You know, Jesus says the, the kingdom is at hand. Uh, 
Psalms 103 said, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heaven, and his kingdom ruleth over all. So there's, a, there's a, one way of looking at the kingdom is God owns it all. But also, it, it's, it's about God ruling in, our, ruling in our hearts. That when we receive him, uh, we not only become a child of God, but we become a citizen of the kingdom. And even though we're not there yet, we're not uh, died and went to heaven, and he's not come and established his throne upon the earth. We're, we're citizens of the kingdom. And so, in that sense, it's a spiritual kingdom. Uh, but also, as we just alluded to, there is a future coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then let's look at that verse 36. And that word, saw. But when he saw the multitudes. It's more than just observing in the sense of, you know, and I saw a big bull moose run across the road today. No, this word saw carries with it more than just seeing something. It, it is to perceive. It's to notice it. It's to discern. It's to discover. It's to Pay attention to what's going on, to observe, as I've said, to turn the eyes and the mind and the attention, to see something, and to see something is wrong, and to make an assertion or uh, uh, some kind of a mental activity of what must be done. So what did he see? He saw people that fainted because they fainted as sheep. They were exhausted. They were weary. And uh, the context, as you can discern from this and other passages, what are they, what are they wore out about? Religion. Religion is one of the most uh, bondage-oriented things there are is in this world. Religion puts you in bondage. Religion is uh, well, it's evil. And it's here instead of being liberating. You know, the Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Instead of being liberating, what the Jewish leaders and how far they'd come from what God designed was putting them in bondage to the point that they fainted. There was, there was a, 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 an absence of hope there. There was discouragement. I cannot do this. I can't live up to this. And it's just asking more and more and more and more and more. And so he saw them as sheep that were fainting. And then he says that they were scattered abroad as a sheep having no shepherd. That word scattered 
means as we would scatter seed or scatter a bunch of rocks as we threw them <coughs> to cast them out. It's to be discouraged. It's to be dejected. But they are, the, the issue there is a shepherd is one who watches when one begins to stray and in the northern or in western United States when they had lots of shepherding going on in the meadows in the summer and in Oregon and Colorado and different places. Of course, if a sheep begins to kind of stray away, which is their tendency to do, then you send the dog out there and get him or you ride your horse and bring him back. And so a shepherd, when there's no shepherd and the sheep are just uh, existing barely because the bear or the coyote is shortly behind them. And this world of lost people are barely existing. They're traveling the broad way where they're concentrating only on the journey but not knowing that the destiny is destruction. He saw that. And as we've related here before in the past, when you look at a sheep, and as I was a little boy, I got to grow up watching my uncles. My uncles had a band of sheep, which is about 1,200, between 1,000 and 1,200 is considered a band. Watched the sheep shearing, watched the lambing. Got to go into the mountains with my uncle and sleep under the stars. And, and as a little boy, see, that, I'm not this old, so listen. A little boy who saw the Sputnik go over. Most of you don't even know what Sputnik is. <laughs> Sputnik was a little blue uh, piece of bubble gum with bumps on it. After the Sputnik was launched, they tried to capitalize on that and, and sell him blue bubble gum. But it was funny <laughs> because here's my, here's my great uncle, not my uh, first close uncle, but my great uncle. He, he owned the sheep, he owned the ranch. And here, here, here I'm a little punk kid, about 12 years old, and I saw that thing go over. And I said, Uncle, there's that Sputnik going over. No, that's just, a, that's just a fallen star. I said, no, it's going over real slow. No, no, that's just a star moving. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't grasp that stuff yet. But what, what, how, did I, how did I get over there? Well, we're out sheep, sheep, tending the sheep. And one of the things about a sheep is they're stupid. They're really stupid. They need a shepherd. And the Lord could see that. Lost people do stupid things. When, and saved people do stupid things when they're not yielded to the shepherd. He wants to wander. That's why he says in Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. Their, their tendency is to go astray. Spiritually, there's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. And so men need a shepherd 
Also, they're dependent. The Philip Keller, who wrote the, uh, the book of Psalms 23 about shepherding, but he told how the sheep can be out feeding and, and get a full belly and want to go lay down and rest. And sometimes, uh, on occasions, not often, but sometimes a sheep can lay down where there's kind of the depression in the ground and he can get on his back and he looks like a little beetle over there on his back and he's kicking his feet, kicking his feet, but he can't get up. And if he stays in that way, the gases in his belly are going to eventually kill him because he has to be upright to be able to deal physically with those gases. And he's dependent upon the shepherd to come and rescue him. And that's what the sheep were. And they're defenseless. You know, a sheep never won a hundred yard sprint with a coyote. Never has, never will. In fact, to watch a sheep run is kind of humorous. A sheep, although they can butt each other's heads, you know, mating season and fight a little bit with each other, a sheep has no advantages with a, with a prey animal. He's defenseless. And, you know, rattlesnakes can rattle and rattlesnakes can strike and Animals of prey can use their claws, and, and different animals have different defense mechanisms, but the sheep just, bah, bah. he has no defense. And listen, even though some of you are saved sheep here this morning, If we don't rely upon the Lord, we'll have big troubles. And so they're defenseless. Now, let's drop back there a little bit in verse 36. And it says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. It means to uh, be um, stirred inwardly. In fact, in the, in the original language, this word is spelanka, like spelunka, and it means your gut. You ever feel like you've been kicked in the gut by what somebody said or did? Moved with, in, in your innermost being. The word compassion, come, means to be with, and passion means to suffer. And so, it's to suffer with. It's a sympathy coupled with a desire to help. Not just feel sorry for them, but to help them. That what I saw affected me inwardly. 
it was a compassion that made him willing to enter in with the suffering and try to fix the suffering. Let me just give you an illustration of, of how easy it is to be so self-centered and not to see. When he looked out, he saw something. He saw more than just a people mingling around. He saw something. This took place on a New York subway. While people were sitting quietly in the subway car, a man entered with his noisy and rambunctious children. The man sat down and closed his eyes as though he was oblivious to his rowdy children. The once quiet subway car was now a disturbing place of chaos. The children's inappropriate behavior was obvious to everyone except their father. Finally, Covey, the man telling this, or about the man who told it, confronted the man about his children. The man opened his eyes and evaluated the situation if he were as though he was unaware of all that had transpired. Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Well, compassion begins with uh, looking and caring and wondering and asking questions. It might surprise you sometimes when you see a person down, you know they're going through something, just to say, are you okay? It may open up a conversation that was by divine appointment. But we're living a day where that question takes time away from us, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And we're time-oriented in the Western culture and we don't have time for that. Here's another little humorous one, a sad one. A man fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think that you're in the pit. A Pharisee says, only bad people fall into a pit. A compassionless fundamentalist said, you deserve your pit. A charismatic said, just confess that you're not in a pit. The Methodist came by and said, we brought you some food and clothing while you're in the pit. The Presbyterian, which is a Calvinist, and everything's foreordained, said, this is no accident, you know. An optimist said, things could get worse. A pessimist said, things will get worse. And Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. Well, the point here is that Jesus saw something. Let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I was looking through your eyes. Wonderful song. And then he made an observation. He said unto them, he changed the, 
language from, from sheep to harvest. Then he said unto, them, then said unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. John says, Say not ye that you are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I send to you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And so he uses the word plenteous. The harvest truly is plenteous. There's lots of harvest out there. But the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. He trained these men for a number of months. He's getting ready to send them out on their own. And you'll see him doing that in chapter 10. But here as he sees that the harvest is plenteous and the laborers are few, he didn't say, come on, boys, we need to gear up. We need to get going. Let the rubber meet the road. Let's get going to all the world and preach the gospel. He didn't say that. He said, uh, you need to pray. This is a command. You need to pray. The Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. You need to pray that the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. And that word send forth is interesting. That he thrust them out into the harvest. Particularly, God called men understand that compulsion, that drive to preach the gospel and to share Christ. But you don't have to be God called to be a pastor or missionary to understand the need that you also should desire to be thrust out. But my point before that is simply this, is that when he says, pray the Lord of the harvest, he says, plead with the Lord of the harvest. Beg the Lord of the harvest. Because, uh, <laughs> let me tell you, there is too much for 12 men to do. There is too much for 120 in an upper room to do. Okay, look at your little handout I gave you. This is just, uh, these are some of the most uh, needy people groups in the world. And you see over towards the right, there's a, there's circles or they're star-like things. Where you see a star, you'll see it's kind of a subclass of people groups, but 
you'll see where there's less than one-tenth of a percent. And understand that. When it has one-tenth of a percent, it's not, it's not one percent, which would be one out of a hundred. But Kara assures me this morning that one-tenth of a percent would be one out of a thousand. Less than one out of a thousand. Is that right, Matt? Okay. And so, so I just want to point out some things there to you. Uh, let's go down to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight. An Arab group in northern Yemen. Fourteen million. Six hundred and seventy-six thousand. And look at the percentage that are evangelical or Christian. Zero. Fourteen million people in Yemen. No Christians. What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? Well, we can pray. And if Revelation says there's going to be someone from every people group, kingdom, nation, tongue, the language, I'm not, I didn't get that language right. But you know what? Our prayers may be what gets credit for some of that if someone goes there. Drop down about five or six more to the Arab and Yemen again, and the 7,594,000. Go down to the bees where it says Bania. This is uh, in India, 16,927,000, and they have no Christians. And then note this one, Bengali Muslims and Bangladesh. We have a missionary who started churches in Bangladesh, Brother Hazra. Well, you know, it's a big, is he really worth support, you know? I mean, now he's over here trying to work in, in New York. I mean, these numbers are staggering. 132 million, 871 thousand in Bangladesh and the numbers are zero and zero and we know that Brother Hasra is there that he's getting ready to organize too we know the opposition is great that's why he came to, to the United States and he's dealing with Bangal Bangalese in New York But here's the deal. The Lord's not even asking us to get up and go. He didn't ask him to get up and go. He's going to later. And he expects us to go. But isn't it interesting, before he said go, he said, get on your knee or bow your head and beg me, beg, 
plead. That I would send forth laborers. Since studying this passage and reading these uh, figures, I asked myself, uh, when was the last time that I prayed for laborers? It's a command. And where was the last time I even cared what was going on in a Muslim country? Those guys are our enemies. Um, I think it'd be pretty hard for me to argue the case that uh, I gave a hoot that I really cared. The bottom line is millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people have not even heard the gospel. And you know what? I don't care. If I did, I'd pray for them. I encourage you to go online. There's a couple of the Joshua Project and a couple of other projects where you can have a people group sent for you, sent to you each morning or each day on your cell phone or on your internet and it would only take us a couple of minutes to bow our head and maybe even research a little deeper about what kind of people they are and what they do but to pray Lord uh, send laborers is there not a need And I realize we can only put boots on the ground in the area which we live, and that's what we're trying to do, trying to do that in our area, and we're trying to do that in the prison, and we're trying to do that through our mailings. But the population of Alaska, not just the natives, but the population of Alaska, it's less than a million. There are a bunch of people out there that need the Lord. I can't imagine knowing, knowing the Lord since I was 13 years old over 60 years, I can't imagine living in a country where I never heard the gospel. 
Have you ever looked at, there was, when uh, there was war in Afghanistan, there was a picture of an Islamic woman that was on the front page of a National Geographic, beautiful woman. And they went and took her picture 10 years later and she looked like she had aged 30 or 40 years. Why is that? Because there are people scattered without a shepherd. But they're living in bondage. Listen, there's nothing more, uh, more imprisoning than religion, and particularly Islam. A woman in Islam is nothing more than a piece of property. Check it out for yourself. She's just a piece of property. And so all I'm asking you to do is obey the Lord and pray for laborers and ask the Holy Spirit to kick us in the <laughs> kick us in the ribs and say you need to be praying that God would raise up laborers and then we get serious about it and it may be that God puts just one people group on your mind years ago I went to a mission conference and there's, there's a guy there who began to, got up a preacher and he's told how his church got under a, a burden for this certain people group. And they started searching around, who could they support uh, to help this people group? And there wasn't any. And he prayed and prayed and prayed and they prayed and prayed and prayed. And you know, uh, God raised up a missionary from another sound church and they were able to get behind him and support. Sometimes he raises it up from your own church. But let's not be, we're in Alaska. We're independent people. We got our act together. And us four and no more is enough. And people say, No man cared for my soul. No man cared for my soul. Let's not be those men. All right? Study. Study the world and the people of the world and you'll see it's a big place and you'll see it's a needy place. All right. I'd encourage you to take this home and at least, at least today, <laughs> begin the, today and pray for one people group. Let me see what, how much time we got. Okay, we got four minutes. I want you to choose a group here. You don't know who they are. You'll see the country in. And I want you to just bow your head and pray for them. And then you're dismissed. All right.